Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we are grateful, grateful that the truths we just sang about are true. And we, Lord, we know that apart from your help, uh, we cannot study your word aright. We will be misled. We will not understand your truth. We won't see the depths of it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us now to see wonderful things in your word. And help us, Lord, uh, to see and behold Christ uh, with greater clarity than we had when we came here this morning. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be on the first 12 verses of this chapter. These are more verses than I'm typically comfortable to cover, so I'm going to try to talk faster than I typically do. And you listen fast, and I'll try to talk fast. Now, this is one of the most memorable passages in all of Scripture. And the story itself is unforgettable. But the theme that it touches on is the theme of man's greatest need. And that need, as we've been singing about, is the need of forgiveness. And not forgiveness by one another, as vital and important as that is, but forgiveness by God. Apart from God's forgiveness, man, you and I, have no hope. We can't fix our own problem, as bad as that is for some of you to accept. Right? We can't fix it. We can't do enough good to overturn the result of our sin against God. We stand utterly guilty before Him, and apart from His divine act, we would remain utterly hopeless. And the Bible is crystal clear on this issue. Man is guilty because he has sinned. Guilt is what you incur when you violate, break God's law. And the reality is, is that we are, as humanity, the, the reality of guilt is universal. No one escapes the indictment. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning Everyone has fallen short of God's perfect standard. And as a result, we stand guilty before Him. James tells us that to sin in one area, just to commit one sin, is to become guilty of breaking the whole law. And the reason for that is because God is perfectly righteous, perfectly pure. And one drop of sin, like One drop of sewage in your drinking water pollutes the entire person. In fact, that's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 24. says that the earth is polluted by its inhabitants. For they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. No one escapes that reality because no one escapes the reality of sin. Now, Scripture uses uh, different metaphors to convey the seriousness of our guilt before God. And one of the key metaphors is that guilt is like an unpayable debt. It's like a debt that you accrue every 
uh, passing moment of your life. The debt grows and grows and grows, and without God's help, you are utterly unable to pay the debt. Isaiah 24, 20 says that the earth itself reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. Why? Because its transgression is heavy upon it. Corporately, the accumulation of all of our sin as humanity, it weighs on the earth and causes it to totter like a wind-blown shack, Isaiah is saying. Now here's the question. What does God say about our guilt? Well, what we see in Scripture is that God is deadly serious about guilt. He's determined to judge the world because of sin. Exodus 34.6 says that the Lord God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth, that He keeps steadfast love for thousands He forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet, listen to this, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, for you to think that God will just wipe away your guilt at the end because He's kind is utterly delusional. Now all of this, good morning, that's a great way to start your Sunday morning, right? All of this points to our greatest problem, which is a problem of guilt before God. And consequently, our greatest need then is what? Forgiveness. Our greatest need is to be forgiven by God. And that, friends, is what we find in Mark 2, 1-12. It's the, the encapsulation of the gospel is the pardon of our sins. And what we're going to see in these 12 verses is that Jesus has absolute authority to forgive you of that mountain of debt that weighs you down and rocks the earth. Jesus alone can pardon sinners. And that, then, is our only hope. Forgiveness in Christ. And what else will we see? Well, for one, we'll see that Jesus is not reluctant to do this. He's a willing, eager Savior, and He is able to do what we could never do on our own. And if sinners, like you and I, come to Him in humble faith, He promises to take your debt and totally erase it. It's wonderful. That's why we love Him. So stand with me, and let's read Mark 2, beginning in verse 1, all the way to verse 12. Mark 2, beginning in verse 1. When He had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that He was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And He was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, 
your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, pardon me, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up, and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Amen. You can be seated. In this passage, Jesus demonstrates that he has absolute authority to forgive sins of all those who trust in him. That's what this story teaches us. And what I want to do with you this morning is just take you by the hand, as it were, and walk through this text section by section. You see the outline in your notes. I won't announce every turn Uh, every transition to the outline, but you should be able to follow along with me, I hope. Now, the first section here we'll call the gathering crowd. The gathering of the crowd. And Mark begins by setting the scene in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Now, you remember that Jesus had been on a preaching tour throughout the region of Galilee. Galilee was not a city, it was a region 90 or so miles north of Jerusalem. And Jesus, on this preaching tour, was going from synagogue to synagogue, preaching everywhere he went. The crowds, you remember, were flocking to him. And as a result of what we saw last week, as a result of the leper's testimony, Jesus was forced to no longer go into the synagogues, But verse 45 says he was forced to go out into unpopulated areas, meaning hillsides, by the lake, anywhere where people didn't live. But that didn't save Jesus from the crowds. Actually, the crowds, it says in verse 45, which is just amazing, they were coming to him from everywhere. Everywhere. You know, you get this imagery of them just kind of coming out. You know, here's Jesus, and they're just coming down from the hillsides, coming from everywhere to flock to Jesus. But at some point, Jesus' preaching tour ends. He comes back to his home base, which is in Capernaum. Most likely, this was Peter's house, and which became his headquarters, really, for his Galilean ministry. Well, somehow, he was able to slip back in uh, to his home in Capernaum without being noticed by the crowds. But after a few days of being home, the news finally broke that the man was back in town. And so, what was the result? Well, the whole city once again descended on Peter's house. You have to think, the neighbors are saying, come on, Peter, again? 
But here they are. Everyone descends on the house. In verse 2, it says that there were so many gathered together that there was no longer any room in the house, not even near the door. In other words, the house is filled to the brim. Right? They're packed like sardines inside, and they're even flowing out of the door. You can imagine them sitting in the windows. They're all around hearing. Now, these houses would have been probably several rooms connected to, uh, you know, there would have been a courtyard that would have connected them, and, and they would have been fl- flowed into the ho- out of the house, rather, into the courtyards, and they're filled, no doubt, all the way into the streets themselves. So you kind of get the scene here. Now, what was Jesus doing? Look at the end of verse 2. He was speaking the word to them. He was preaching. You'll remember, according to chapter 1, verse 38, uh, that's exactly what Jesus said he came to do. Let's go to other towns also so that I can preach to them, for that is why I came. So he's just doing what he said he came to do, preaching the word. And so apparently at this point, he's not doing miracles. He's simply preaching the truth of the gospel. Namely, that the kingdom of God has come near, according to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The kingdom of God has come near, and sinners can be saved by faith and repentance, by grace alone. Now, the crowds are sitting there, no doubt they're marveling at his teaching, just like they did when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in chapter 1. They're engaged, they're listening. And likely, they, they don't see the approach of the paralytic in verse 3. Right? They're so engaged, so focused on Jesus, they, they likely don't notice the five men who come up. Verse 3, the text says, They came bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And we're transitioning to the faith of the five. Four healthy men at least healthy enough to tote a grown man on a stretcher, or a, a pallet, which is likely just a stretcher of sorts. And this man, it says, was a paralytic. It simply means that he couldn't walk. It's a transliteration of the Greek word. He can't walk. Given the description, it's likely that he was something like a quadriplegic. He had no use of his legs or his arms. All four limbs seem to be paralyzed, which is why... He's being carried by the four men on this stretcher. And these men have one aim. They are trying to get to Jesus. But, according to verse 4, they can't because of the crowds. In Luke's account, he says that they could find no way to get through to the crowd. Just imagine the scene. They're all listening. And here is this poor paralytic. Four friends trying to get to Jesus. But they can't because the crowds won't let them by. That tells us something about these crowds. It's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, crowds play a very significant role. Actually, the crowds are mentioned 40 times up to chapter 10 in the Gospel of Mark. The crowds were not an indicator necessarily of success. Now, the crowds were actually, in the gospel, crowds indicated 
fickleness, passivity, really a lack of commitment. Not once do you see crowds in the Gospel of Mark wholesale turning and repenting and trusting in Jesus. Actually, what you usually see is that the crowds are kind of outsiders and they block the way of the faithful to get to Jesus. And that's exactly what we have here. If it weren't for the persistence of these four men, the crowds themselves would have blocked the faithful five from getting to Jesus. But these men were absolutely resilient, and it's actually quite shocking. Now, if it would have been you or I carrying the, the mat, we would have probably turned around when we you know, turned on the street, looked down the way, and said, wow, look at the crowd. All right, this is not God's will today. All right? It's kind of like you pull up to the restaurant, you see the line you know, backed out of the front door, and if it's me, I'm saying, pizza sounds fine. You know? <laughs> Let's go do something else. After a few attempts, though, to break through the crowd, these guys don't give up. They keep going. They don't see this as a closed door. They don't say, well, sorry, friends, this is just not God's will for you. Look at what they do. Verse 4. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they remove the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now that's determination. Right? That's resolve, commitment. You guys won't let us buy? Okay, we'll just go through the roof. <laughs> and so they do. They go around to the stairs, which every house in this time would have had. Uh, they would have been able to go up the stairs, around behind the crowd, up the stairs, onto a flat roof made out of wooden cross beams layered over with thatch, which would have had clay, mud, dirt, that sort of thing on top of it. That would have dried. They would have probably put tile on top of that. And then on top of the tile, another layer of dried clay. And all of that would have made a sturdy roof that would have been weatherproof. What they would often do is store things on top of the roof on hot summer nights, like in Texas. They would go up to the roof, and even the whole family would sleep. So here these men are. They go up to the roof, stable roof. They somehow locate. This is amazing. They somehow locate where Jesus is standing in the room or in the house. Probably by, you know, you just see them kind of going around, listening on the top of the roof, figuring out where Jesus is standing. And then they begin literally digging through the roof right above where Jesus is teaching. Can you imagine? I mean, talk about a distraction. And I wouldn't have been able to handle that. You know, all of a sudden, the roof starts caving in right here on the pulpit. That's more than I can handle. Um, But Jesus, it seems, just keeps going on. Until all of a sudden, these four dirty faces stick their head through a hole and look down around at the crowd. Think about it. And you know, this is, not, this is not a keyhole we're talking about. This is a hole big enough to let a grown man down through, laying on his back on a stretcher. And all of a sudden, he descends on Jesus' pulpit. And it's just amazing. Now, what are we seeing here? What are these guys doing? What does the crowd think? Well, no doubt they think, what are these four lunatics doing? 
They're tearing up this man's house and they're letting this man down through the roof. Jesus, do something. Stop them from destroying Peter's property. Or stop them from destroying our, you know, we are enjoying listening to your talk, Jesus. And now ruin it. Do something about it. So no doubt the crowd sees this as some sort of, you know, lunatic behavior. How does Jesus see it? Look at verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith. It's amazing. Jesus sees what these men are doing as a demonstration of genuine, authentic faith. Theirs is the kind of faith that gets Jesus' attention. It's really the only kind of faith that there is. It's biblical faith. These men are exemplary in their demonstration of what true faith is. And I have nine points I want to give you really quickly about their faith. Okay, I'm going to give them to you really quickly. These are important lessons about faith from these men. First, what do we, what do we learn about faith from their resolve? First, faith is active. Faith is active. Biblical faith is not merely intellectual assent. Their faith drove them to activity. There is certainly an intellectual component to faith, but if your faith does not extend to your feet, your hands, and your mouth, then it is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is active. Second, biblical faith is resilient. These men are absolutely resilient. They had every reason to quit. But their faith drove them to circumvent the crowds, to remove the roof, to get to Jesus. They they would not be stopped. That's faith. Faith is resilient. It perseveres. When things get hard, faith presses on. Third, biblical faith employs means. In other words, biblical faith doesn't say, well, God will take care of it. You know, they didn't stop outside the crowd and say, okay, well, this is clearly a sign from God that our friend doesn't get healed today. We, there's no way we can get to Jesus today. So let's just pray that God will part these people like he parted the Red Sea, or else we're just going to sit here on our hands. No, these men employ means. They know God has given them feet and arms and, and fingernails to dig through the roof of the, the house. And so... Their faith drives them to pray, no doubt, but also to do their part. Their faith drives them to action and to use of the means that God gave them. Fourth, biblical faith is confident. These men were totally confident that if they could get to Jesus, Jesus would take care of it. That's all they have to do. Fifth, biblical faith is focused on Christ. No doubt these men, I mean, this is the one thing on their mind. (laughs) We must get to Jesus. Nothing is going to stop me. Sixth, biblical faith works hard. It works hard. They could have given up outside. They should have given up on the roof, probably. But they didn't. Their willingness or they, they were willing, rather, to press on and do the hard work. Seventh, biblical faith 
overflows in good deeds. Who are these men acting for? They're not thinking about themselves. Actually, if they were thinking about themselves, they would not have dug a hole through another man's property. Right? Someone has to pay for that. They said, it's not a, it's not a problem. We'll take care of it. That's what faith does. Eight, biblical faith evokes the smile of God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please, to please God. With faith, with faith you please Him. Nothing is more pleasing to God than when you simply take Him at His word. Did you know that? Nothing is more pleasing to God than when you simply take Him at His word. Exercise your faith and you get God's smile. And that's what we see here. Jesus is not angry with this man. Peter probably was. We know Peter. Right? Just as angry as you and I would probably be if someone dug through our roof. But Jesus warmly receives this man because of his faith. And he even calls him son or child. It's a term of endearment. And then lastly, and this most importantly, at least for the context here, biblical faith results in the forgiveness of sins. You trust God, you exercise this kind of faith, the product is total pardon of your sins. Jesus looks at these men, sees their faith, looks down at the paralytic and says something more shocking than the man's rooftop entry. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Totally unexpected. I mean, by all appearances, what are they coming to get? Healing. They want to be healed. They want their friend to be healed. But Jesus sees their faith and He takes the conversation to a deeper level. And that's an understatement. He's not saying here, and just for the record, we're on the compassion of the Savior. Verse 5. He's not saying here, uh, your paralysis is not important. I don't care how you physically are. That's not at all what he's saying. He's just saying, by addressing his, the, the reality of his sin and guilt, he's just saying, the most important thing here, friend, is not your paralysis of body, but your paralysis of soul. That's the real issue. And I'm going to deal with that issue And then all these other things, this is nothing. The forgiveness of your sin, that's the big thing. And if I take care of that, it's nothing for you to get up and walk. And that's reality. And that's Romans 8.32. If he did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He forgives us. That's the biggest thing. And if he's done that, all the lesser things of your life that seem so huge to you are nothing. All right, Jesus comes and He cuts through the physical, gets straight to the heart, and He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's amazing. The word forgiveness here literally means to be sent away. Just think about that. Forgiveness means to be sent away. It points all the way back to the book of Leviticus. 
So I want you to turn there with me, Leviticus chapter 16. You remember Leviticus 16, you E4M guys know. Uh, this is the Day of Atonement. We're on the Day of Atonement. There were several things happening, but among those things, there were two goats brought in to the priest to be sacrificed. One of the goats was to be sacrificed on the altar, which symbolized the ultimate sacrifice of our Lord. Rather than the worshiper die, the goat would die in the place of the worshiper, just as Jesus dies in the place of all those who trust in him. Right? We know that. But something different happened with the second goat. You remember what happened to the second goat? He's a scapegoat. This goat was brought in to the priest, kept alive, and he was called the scapegoat. Listen to, or you can look with your eyes better, um, chapter 16, verse 21. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat. Now, he's talking about a symbolic transfer of the guilt of God's people onto this animal. All the sins of God's beloved people are transferred in an act of symbolism onto the head of the scapegoat. And then notice, he says, He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. What does it mean to be forgiven literally? Forgive means to send away. Leviticus, in the next verse rather, sorry, verse 22. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land. Did you catch the language of sending away? This is where that comes from. Actually, in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, the word for scapegoat literally translates to the one ordered to be sent away. The one ordered to be sent away. And the imagery is powerful. In Christ, in Christ, our sins are sent away. The mound of debt on you because of your guilt in Christ, it's sent away, dealt with on the cross, transferred your guilt and sin, transferred to Him, and as the true scapegoat, He carries it all away. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He bears our grief, and our sorrow. This is what He does. And what's the result? Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgression from us. The scapegoat carried the sin symbolically into the wilderness. Jesus carries them as far as the east is from the west to never return. Friends, that's the hope of the gospel, the promise of the gospel. <clears throat> and when Jesus 
looks at this paralytic and says, Child, your sins are forgiven. That's what he's saying. They're dealt with once and for all. All the crimes, all the ways you've sinned against me, past, present, the sins you'll commit now that you have legs to walk around on and your sin, excuse me, you'll be more easily able to sin, walking to sinful places. All of those things are taken care of. You are forgiven. That is the state of the Christian. Pardoned. Absolutely pardoned. Well, Jesus' declaration immediately, not surprisingly necessarily, but immediately provokes a group of people who were mixed into the crowd. Look at verse 6. The skepticism of the scribes. Luke tells us that there was another group of religious leaders in the audience, the Pharisees. In verse 6, But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These were the experts in Mosaic Law. Uh, They were the scholars of the day, ivory tower theologians. They had enough sense to know that no mere man had the authority to forgive sins. Even Moses had not the audacity to pardon sinners. Remember, what did Moses do? He pleaded with God on behalf of Israel that God would forgive them, but not Jesus. Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And so these men immediately respond with skepticism. And they, according to the text, they experience a sort of crisis of mind. Let me get back there. Uh, Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. They've heard something that's unsettling in their mind, in their heart. Biblical language, the mind and the heart are one. Verse 6 says, they were, they were reasoning in their hearts. Dialogizomai. They were thinking carefully about Jesus' words, especially, note this, especially the implications of what he was saying. So, they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The implication, you must be God. With the scribes, you're claiming to be God. You cannot be God. Here's their logic. Major premise. Only God can forgive sins. Minor premise. Jesus of Nazareth is clearly not God. Their conclusion, Jesus is blaspheming. Now, their first premise, their first argument is right. Only God can forgive sins. Their theology is right and true. It's their second argument, the second premise that messes them up. They fail to consider that perhaps Isaiah 7 was coming to fruition in front of their eyes. God is now with us. To them, that made no sense. And so they were happy to hear Jesus teach. Just like Many people in our culture 
are happy to steal Bible verses and placard them on billboards to make wicked arguments. They're happy to quote Jesus. They're happy to hear Him teach. But as soon as He claims to be God, that's going too far. For them, Jesus had crossed the line. And actually, beginning with this verse... The opposition against Jesus from the religious establishment, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, it begins to grow. And quickly, actually from chapter 2 to chapter 3, verse 6, the scribes and the Pharisees are now plotting, in just one chapter, plotting to destroy Jesus. Why? Not because He was a great teacher. Because He was claiming to be God. And actually, we need to think about this. If they were right, if if Jesus was not God, then they were were actually obeying God. Leviticus 24.16, The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. I mean, here is a man in their midst claiming to be God. And their response is biblical. These guys were biblicists, thoroughly. Now, they had their tradition on top of that. But they were trying to do what was right. I'm not excusing them. Please don't take it that way. These men were trying to obey. They looked at Jesus and said, He's a blasphemer. He can't be God. And that really is the dilemma for them, and it's the dilemma for us today. Jesus, according to C.S. Lewis, and he's right, is either a liar a lunatic, or he is the Lord God. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. There's no room to hang out in the middle. Either he's Lord, and these five men are right in what they're doing, or he's a lunatic and a liar, and the scribes are right in what he's doing. Now, the crowds are trying to hang out in this kind of, you know, in-between. The crowds are non-committal. But there's no room for that. In the Gospels, there's no room for that today. We must all come to terms with this Jesus. Either He is the Lord, God incarnate, meaning God in flesh, and all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. Or, we need to throw this thing away, and you need to go watch football this afternoon. Alright? Either He's Lord, or He's a lunatic and a liar. You can't hang out in between. It's like Elijah. How long will you go limping between two opinions? If God is God, serve Him. If Baal, then serve Him. If Jesus is not God, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And the scribes in this moment are brought face to face with the dilemma of the decade. Well, that's a total understatement. The dilemma of their lives, right? Here they are. Who is this man? Is he God or is he an absolute lunatic? Well, I love the way that C.S. Lewis addressed this issue in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to the way Lewis sort of encapsulates the scribe's dilemma. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as the great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That, says Lewis, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. <clears throat> he did not intend to. Now he concludes. It seems to me obvious, says Lewis, that he was neither a lunatic nor a devil. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. For the scribes, this was too strange. could never be. But for the man who was healed, this is God incarnate. And my sins are forgiven. Now, lastly, let's look at the authority of the Son. The authority of the Son. Look at how Jesus responds to these men. He goes right after their mistaken premise. Number two, Jesus of Nazareth is not God. He goes right after it. Verse eight, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that, that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Now, this is in front of a massive crowd. <clears throat> and you have to think, these guys immediately look at one another and say something like, how does he know what I'm thinking? Now, they know their Old Testaments. They know that there is only one being who can read the heart of man. And it's not you, and it's not me. So, it's none of this, I know what you're thinking. We say that sort of thing, uh, probably shouldn't say that sort of thing, because we don't know what someone else is thinking. We don't know that. We don't have comprehensive knowledge of people, so let's not say, I know what you're thinking. All right, can we agree on that? <clears throat> Jesus here knows exactly what these scribes are thinking. That in itself is a, the employment of the attribute of divine omniscience, right? There's only one being who has all knowledge, and that being is God. Jesus has omniscience. Therefore, Jesus is God. Now, these men are immediately confronted by this reality. Then look at verse 9. Jesus says, Which is easier? Let me ask you, which is easier, he says, to, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. In other words, Jesus understands that the scribes think he's just lying. 
To say you're forgiven is not a falsifiable statement. There's no way to prove that right or wrong. I can't prove to you uh, that you're forgiven or not. And so the scribes are sitting there thinking, come on. This is not even a debatable thing. Only God can forgive. You're not God. And plus, there's no way that we could ever know whether you've forgiven this man's sins or not. Come on, Jesus. We thought you were a better teacher than that. But look, verse 10 says that Jesus absolutely can prove his point. And so he does. But so, he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So that you may know that the Son of Man... Now that's a reference to Daniel 7, and we don't have time to go to Daniel 7. Read it on your own. It's a reference to the messianic uh, figure who would come and have all power on earth. The, the scribes know this figure. They know Daniel 7, 14 and 15. They know it. And so when Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, they're thinking, wait, what? What are you saying, Jesus? And Jesus says, so that you may know, I'm the Son of Man, and I am God in the flesh, and I have authority to forgive sins. Paralytic, rise, get up, take your pallet, and go home. And unlike the leper before him, this man obeys immediately. Right? Strong contrast from the leper's response in verse um, chapter 1 to this man's response. Verse 12, he got up immediately, picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone. Now talk about <clears throat> a mic drop moment. Right? The point is made. Everyone knows who won that debate. And everyone knows that something strange is happening in Capernaum. So, the text says, And they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Literally, they're outside of their minds. (laughs) They, They can't explain what they've just seen. They're theological heroes, the scribes and the Pharisees were there too. These are the ones who they they looked to for all the answers. And all of a sudden, this man from Nazareth, who's been healing everybody, all of a sudden he demonstrates for all of us that he has the authority to pardon sinners. This doesn't make any sense to them. And so they're utterly amazed. Now, the paralytic... He's not. I mean, he gets up and he leaves and his sins are forgiven. His feet are underneath him. He's going about and he is singing on his way, no doubt. Right? He knows. He knew before he came down the roof who this man was preaching. And so did the other men. They knew that Jesus was what the Old Testament promised he would be. They knew that he was the Messiah. And so they come to him in faith And Jesus' response, just like his response will be to any humble sinner who comes to Jesus in faith, his response will always be, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
And so the crowd is amazed. And right then, the crowd, just like the scribes were, the crowd is faced with Lewis's dilemma again. Either this man is a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. They're all scratching their heads. This is the discussion. What is this? Who is this? What have we just seen? Either this man was and is the Son of God, and he has full authority to forgive sins, or he was a madman. And the crowds continue to be fickle. The scribes are hardened in their uh, belief, but no doubt these five men are rejoicing, giving thanks, because Jesus has pardoned their sins. Now, what are the applications for us today? Well, I think that's pretty clear, I hope, as we've walked through this passage. But I want to bring you uh, to the same question uh, that Lewis proposes. Uh, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or he's Lord. Now, you know that, and I know that. Uh, The question, though, for you is, what is he? What is he? Your life is the greatest demonstration of your answer to that question. So do you live your life as if Jesus is a liar? Let me just give you some ways you can live that way. Jesus says, I forgive you of your sins by faith. And you say, no, there's no way you could ever forgive me. Uh, Jesus says, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, You don't know my neighbor. Uh, Jesus says, I will be Lord. And you say, I really like being the Lord of my life. Your life itself demonstrates your answer to Lewis's question. Now, I would push it a little further here. And I would just ask you, if you you have bowed the knee to Christ and you confess Jesus as Lord, Does your appreciation, gratitude of Jesus' forgiveness of your sins, does it match anywhere near the paralytic's gratitude in this passage? Here's what I mean by that. If our greatest need is forgiveness, greatest need you have, If Jesus has taken care of that, and you say you believe it, and you trust Him, and you're here singing about it this morning, if that is true, then all is well for you. If Jesus has taken care of your sins, if your life totally unravels, all is okay. Because Jesus has taken care of your greatest need. You want to know what the secret is? to a happy, blessed life is? It's remembering that Jesus has met your greatest need. If you, if you remember that, contemplate that, set that before you, you can sing through the most difficult trial. And, and here's where I get that, Romans 4, 7 to 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Blessed is happy 
are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let me read that again. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Friends, if Jesus has pronounced you forgiven by humble faith in Him, then all is well. And you now exist in a situation where your sins will never be taken into account again. Don't dwell on the list of sins that you have committed when Jesus says in Colossians 2 that those sins have been nailed to the cross. Don't carry around in your mind a list of sins that Jesus has sent away. The intention of the scapegoat was not that Israel would sit and muse about how terrible they are. No, the scapegoat goes away, and what do they do? They rejoice because God has taken care of their sin. Friends, if Jesus is Lord, you have nothing to fear. If He's a liar, you should be very afraid. If He's a lunatic, we have no hope. But if He is Lord, then our sins are forgiven and all is well by faith in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness to us. Thank You for providing for us a sufficient Savior in Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from our lawless deeds so that we could live forever with You full of joy, grateful, eternally grateful that You sent Your only Son into the world to die as a lamb on an altar for us. We thank You that He died in our place, that in Him, by faith, all is well with us. And Lord, we ask, if there is any here who have not bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord, maybe, Father, they're, they're in the middle. Lord, we know that Your desire is that they would bow the knee to Jesus today. So we ask, Lord, that You would work faith in their hearts that they would respond with active obedience, turn from their way, and find in you the God who will abundantly pardon. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.